Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Uh, Delighted to have you as my guest today. This is actually your second time on the podcast. I think the first time we talked, you were actually doing your um you're, you're working on your dissertation, you're doing your research, and now we've got you back. You've just recently finished, um, earned your PhD, so uh, Dr. Jennings is our guest today. Congratulations, Sarah. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad to see you again. I know. I can't remember how long ago it was. It had to be a year or more ago we first talked, so I'm glad to be back and just talk a little bit about my experience through this program and the research and some of my findings. Um, So I've been uh, working on a doctoral uh, degree for about seven and a half years and the last three years really took me into the research phase. But I am a practitioner, so I've been fundraising for and working on my 21st year uh, of being a fundraiser and working in nonprofit management. 
So, uh, you know, balancing the practitioner side with the research side has been really interesting. Uh, it's been it's been a bit challenging, but extremely rewarding if anyone has the opportunity to do it and is really interested in contributing to, you know, what I think is is very needed in our field right now. Yeah, you know, that reminds me that reminds me of our first conversation and a number of the conversations that I've had with others about um, those of us who've been in the field, uh, practitioners who've been in the field and done the work. But I think there's sort of this this those of us who have done it, perhaps say, let's say we've done it for a decade or more. Um, sort of itching for more careful and critical thinking about it. That's sort of the way I look at it. Is, is that sort of does that sort of sum it up really well? Is that sort of what you um, is that why you're sort of reaching for some, such an opportunity to sort of think a little more carefully and critically about what it is we're doing? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it took me a bit to really arrive at what I wanted to take a look at. And, uh, you know, at the same time, had to balance it with being very focused. So uh, I looked at, you know, some of the studies that had come about over about the last decade. And there are some that I'm sure many know about already. Underdeveloped is certainly one in 2013 that came out. And that was the first national study that included nonprofit executive officers and their lead development officers, and it was specifically on fundraising. So I was really fortunate to be able to connect with the authors of that study and request permission to use their survey instruments um, and also request permission to modify a bit to fit my needs. And I got to thinking about why is it that the things that they uncovered, particularly around this cycle that is occurring with our fundraisers uh, staying in their jobs, uh, that retention, we have, you know, frequent, obviously, um, turnover, but also short tenures. Uh, I think, you know, uh, I've seen statistics, 16 months to 18 months is about the average. And so, that really has been continuing. And a study came out that the Association of Fundraising Professionals and the Chronicle of Philanthropy conducted, I think in uh, 2019, really didn't show much change. It shows that fundraisers really are intending on even leaving the field entirely uh, within about two years. Uh, and I think that that statistic was around 30%, but 50%, you know, um, plan to leave their positions within 24 months or less. So that's a continuing trend. So I got to thinking about, okay, well, why? Why is this happening? We understand and a lot of the studies have shown us that this is happening. And we get to see some perspectives and some differences between what CEOs and development officers might think about fundraising. And so I thought, well, you know, we have these wonderful education programs in higher education that are to train our leaders in nonprofit management and philanthropy studies. So let's take a look at what's happening there and apply it to this relationship. So I looked at chief executive officers and their educational background and how that might be influencing if there were any patterns there uh, for how those outcomes were on their development officer relationship. And then I also looked at that regarding the organization's culture of philanthropy. So are these executive officers with that background 
influencing differently their relationships with their development officers or with the organization's culture. I also looked at whether the executive officers had worked as a fundraiser previously or if they're currently engaged in some kind of training about philanthropy or fundraising in their executive officer role and whether that impacted the relationship with their development officer or the organization's culture. So I took it, you know, this wonderful study that came through underdeveloped and the um, survey instruments, wonderful data to capture there, but really honed in and added the education component, uh, added the fundraising background component and added some communications components too. You talk about so I was reading through I was I was reading through some of the summaries that you you, you put together for people like myself who sort of like to get a get everything sort of in a, an executive summary I guess you could call it and you talk about this idea of a perception gap um, I'm working on I'm working on uh, some writing of my own and I thought that might be a really good sort of way to characterize one area of what I'm writing about and it's just it's yeah, I, and I, I don't want to unpack the information. I'm gonna let you certainly let you do that. But you talk about this perception gap, sort of being the sort of the way that the CDO understands their role and the way that the CEO understands his or her role. Um, how much, how much, Sarah? Do you think that really sort of? How much of it do you really think that that's really what it comes down to? Because I, 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 my guest have oftentimes heard me say, Sarah, that I think that in the fundraising space, we have a supervisory problem, not so much a fundraising problem. I think we can attract plenty of people who are passionate, highly relational people who have the audacity to ask for money. Um, I don't think we have a lot of, a lot of supervisors out there who actually know how to identify those types of individuals give them the right type of job description and then supervise them appropriately and constructively. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do. I absolutely do. And yeah, and I agree after looking through a lot of research studies and the literature that's out there uh, and, and it's, you know, one thing that going through this kind of exercise does it, it brings together, kind of pulls together all of these unique ideas that are out there and you can see a bit of a pattern. And I think you're right that there is, um, you know, this, this perception gap that's identified. And I think we can think about that in a lot of different ways. But one thing that was helpful for me was to actually apply some of the theory uh, because there are theories and studies that have been done Um supervisor employee relationships in general, but really talking about that connectivity and what that means for employees becoming loyal, embedded in the organization. And then you think about that in relation to, well, we do have this issue of turnover. And there, of course, are a lot of influences uh, there, you know, could be salary, could be, you know, advancement opportunities. But ultimately, you know, they find that that relationship with the supervisor and employee can um, even um, uh, do more than job satisfaction, you know, with their actual job uh, for employees wanting to remain with uh, with an employer. 
So, so there, there's that piece of it too that I think relates definitely to that relationship. And then there are other theories that talk about, well, what do they have in common? Are they intrinsic, intrinsically, sorry, intrinsically motivated, uh, you know, by values, by mission? Do they share that in common or are they more extrinsically motivated, which would be, you know, by economic factors? So, you know, the salary or um, or the title or or being, you know, more um, a, a spokesperson, you know, that type of, of a motivation. And most of us have a combination, but it's about aligning, um, you know, how well do do they match? And then you know, looking at the, the leader uh, side of the equation, if, if our leaders can understand and acknowledge how important these things are, uh, you know, we could potentially see some improvements and, uh, and, and, and bridge some of, some of that gap. So, you know, ultimately, I was hoping to find some patterns, and I did find a couple of patterns um, that showed statistically significant influence uh, between education and uh, with the CEO and um, and um, some engaged in training uh, that would impact uh, the relationship and the culture of the organization. So, um, but yes, I, to bridge that gap, I think it, it just it takes a little bit more of an understanding of what's happening and why. Do, do you think in the midst of, um, so when you were doing your research, you were sort of on the back end of your research and you were sort of finishing this, all this up as we were entering into and living in this new reality of a worldwide pandemic and so forth. Um, do, do you think, do you think this is all the more relevant and it's going to be exasperated the sort of the, what we're talking about, or do you think some of this will sort of work itself out? I, I tend to think about some of the conversations I've had over the last year and, and what I think what I'm hearing is, is maybe a, uh, a little more optimism, a little bit more optimism, but it's, it's, it's coming from an enlightenment of the fundraiser sort of coming to the realization that the, that perhaps the employer they were working for was not as prepared for the current environment. And so they're really just feeling more, more aware, I think of maybe I can go out and find that boss who gets this. Does that, does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think, you know, we learned a lot over the last year. And I think we learned a lot more about what motivates our donor base and how the loyalty with among that donor base, you know, can carry us forward. I know a lot of organizations saw a lot of um, increased giving even, or at least some sustained giving. But also, you know, those in some specialty areas, uh, like corporate relations, for example, they saw some challenges, you know, that a lot of um, freezes to giving budgets and that type of thing. But yes, and it does um, lead us to really examine, you know, it kind of shines a spotlight um, or takes the covers off of, of how we were operating before. And now we can see it a little differently. And so I can understand, you know, professionals really assessing, uh, their employer where, where they are. And, you know, I do hope that we, you know, as far as, you know, nonprofits and, and fundraising, 
can just learn from what we've experienced and also, you know, learn that that collaborative partnership is so important. And, you know, the reason that I decided to take a look at executive officers is because they're really uniquely positioned in organizations uh, because certainly we could look at development staff. We could look at development officers and say, well, what about you? What about your characteristics? And what about, you know, what is influencing this disconnect uh, from that side? And I, I think some research there is, is noted definitely as well, but the executive officer, you know, they are, able to influence the board, they're able to influence the staff, and they're able to influence the culture. So uh, that was kind of my starting point anyway, as far as this study goes. Um, But yes, I I would even go so far as to say some of the uh, understanding about fundraising, when we look at just how we've been established, you know, we're a voluntary sector and our boards are largely volunteer boards and they're largely uh, consisting of executives and very accomplished people, but those that are coming from other industries. And uh, so is there an understanding of shifting from maybe some of their uh, for-profit experience, if that might be the case, to an organization that is uh, socially accountable. So is there an understanding of maybe the little bit of a shift that's needed there in how we look at, okay, this isn't a sales mentality necessarily. Uh, When we talk about fundraising and those metrics, it is relationship building. And there's a little bit of uncertainty uh, within that. Well, how do we quantify relationship building. Like it's into a whole metrics conversation right there. Right. <laughs> Sarah, do you think, Sarah, do you think that because the world, uh, the, the underdeveloped study, it, it's got to be 10 years old, is it not? It's at least 10. Uh, it was when, 2013. Yeah. So it's yeah. coming up on, on a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in many ways, the world has the world has changed in a lot of ways since then, and 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 that's to even sort of overlook or set aside um, the the pandemic. I mean, when you think about um, the the um, the push for more diversity and equity and inclusion and in sort of the workplace and the role, you know, women sort of digging in their heels and saying, "Look, we're going to." Uh, be given a more appropriate, you know, we're going to be acknowledged for the contributions that we make and the role that we play in the in the marketplace and so forth. Um, and then you also sort of, if we acknowledge that, if we acknowledge that, for example, a large number of fundraisers, I mean, some of the audiences I'm oftentimes speaking in front of, 80, 90% of them are oftentimes women. And so I guess what I'm asking is, is, is if if they were if if the original if the folks who originally did the under, underdeveloped study if they did it now do you think it might have some more a more positive spin on it because maybe the the previous sort of the previous you know the initial research was maybe just too driven by a bunch of you know older white guys that looked might like me that were sort of just uh, stubbornly sort of running the world at the time. Yeah, that's a great question. I I have the study in front of me. I will, I, and I could dig probably into verify, but I want to say that I think the uh, 
their uh, participants were about evenly split, if I recall, between uh, women and men. The right. Those in my study, though, were predominantly women. I will say that. And I did find that there was some improvement as far as they ranked the relationship with their executive officer. I also had to think about, because uh, I had three survey distribution partners um, across, you know, we captured responses across the country, but had to think about, okay, who is going to really be responding to this? For one thing, we're sending it out to top level executives and they probably possibly have a very, um, uh, uh, what do I would say, uh, just they're, they're coming at it from perhaps, you know, a place of being more positive. Um, but I did, there were definitely some outliers that were very, um, you know, much on the more negative side with, with their relationships. Um, but in, in taking a look at that, I potentially there may be, you know, some improvements happening, but for someone to get through, because these are lengthy surveys for someone to get through that, they've got to be really dedicated. So, you know, that could also be quite a factor is, you know, how long has someone been doing this work and how dedicated are they to it and dedicated to building that relationship and bridging some of these gaps and working together. So I think that does have, definitely something to do with it. But I mean, I think it's always good to take a look again, you know, um, and, uh, and compare, make some comparisons. But, you know, like I said, the, I think the, Sarah, I think the, I think the thing that I've appreciated in both conversations that I've had with you and, and you talk about this, going back to this perception gap, you reference this, and I'm, I'm interested if you'll sort of un- unpack uh, your thinking on this point, because it, I, I recall the first time that we talked, it, it seemed to echo you, you and I seem to sort of concur on, on this point. And that is a lot of the training that I do and a lot of the writing that I do, um, contrary to what I traditionally was taught, um, I was taught, as I'm sure you were in many ways, there was so much emphasis put on the board role, the role of the board and the role that they, you know, the fiduciary responsibilities that they had and the role that they had in fundraising. And and I think what I've enjoyed in our conversations, and I'm thinking back on our earlier conversation, I'm looking at the notes from your the summary of your research. Um, you're really sort of putting the, you're pointing the finger on the CEO and the chief development officer and not sort of laying the man, you know, laying the hammer down on, um, on the board. Do you think we're going to, are we moving in a direction where experts in the room, you know, people like ourselves who are privileged to stand in front of the room will stop sort of blame, you know, blame shifting, you know, pointing their finger at the board so often that we'll actually start taking responsibilities professionals. Those of us on the payroll. Yeah, well, I, you know, personally, I, I, I hope so. Uh, because I do think that <laughs> I, you know, I do think that we, we need to have these robust boards of, you know, consisting of experts that represent our communities, represent our mission, and they're able to advise us about some things, some dynamics, or potentially within uh, our, our donor bases. 
Um, you know, they certainly are very important to opening important doors. And I think they come with uh, their expertise, uh, whether it's financial, legal, you know, what have you. And I hope that we see ourselves as those professionals that are able to bring to them the best practices in nonprofit operations, in philanthropy, uh, and and to have, again, there's that partnership between the board and the organization or the fundraising uh, area. So, yeah, that's a whole other um, area to be explored as well as far as perception. But I will say I can just dive in a little bit more about what does that mean, you know, this perception gap. So, um there is research out there and one in particular that I lifted, you know, some of these uh, gap points from was by Scafiat et al. So, um, and I can find the the year that that was published, but, um, you know, this, this group of researchers found that there was a gap regarding um, the perception around the extent to which fundraising is even a profession so, um, you know, executive officers may not even be viewing it as, you know, as strong of a profession. And we know that there's, you know, an ongoing challenge to professionalize. Uh, and um, also whether boards fully understand the fundraising role. So executive officers may think, yeah, our board understands it. And the development side may say, well, not exactly. This is what we're experiencing. So I think there's some, again, some collaboration and education um, needed there. And um, also donor satisfaction levels. You know, there's a perception difference there. Now, maybe that can be solved with some kind of a survey and they can actually find, well, this is, you know, the pattern that we're getting direct feedback from our donor base. Um Satisfaction with training and professional development. Our development officers aren't feeling that they, you know, have enough uh, of that training. And I also make a case for the training of the executive officer and for the board uh, to get that high level training in in development and philanthropy so that they kind of have a a little bit of a better, more current understanding uh, of it. So those are just some of those perception differences. yeah, I've had I, I, I've had a number of guests who um, I would say you know let's let's just 10, 10, 10, 15 years younger than I am, and they they're they're sort of coming into the nonprofit sector at a time, and they're they're coming into fundraising at a particular time when um, when we're talking about to a much greater degree the way in which the organization in particular, sometimes the board represents the diversity and the represents the people who are being served, for example. And, and, and at times as I'm listening to them, I sort of wonder if they have a historical understanding of how many of these CEOs and board members themselves, these boards have historically been constructed largely around these these fundraising aspirations, whatever they might be, you know, um, and so um, I, I guess I guess what I, I guess what I'm saying and sort of and asking is is are we going to give ourselves time for the uh, expectation of what we see these board members doing and therefore allowing sort of our professionalization, our 
I've always wondered why, why do fundraisers fight the fight to be recognized as professionals and then hand it off to quote unquote amateurs to do the job? It, it just seems, <laughs> it, it just seems like they're dodging bullets or whatever they're trying to do. Um, look, if you want to be a professional, step up and be a professional, but then don't blame the, the board members who are not professionals at this. Uh, when, when the goals aren't being met, um, yes. you follow what I'm right. saying? I do. I definitely do. And I do think it has to be much more of a partnership. And, uh, you know, there's the flip side of it where, you know, sometimes board members come in and have experienced fundraising, been a part of a working board that's, you know, run a gala or whatever it might be. Yeah. And yeah. maybe that's where they're coming from as I have this, I understand fundraising. I see how this works. And there, we know there's a whole other layer uh, of information uh, and, um, and options there that, uh, you know, we have to, again, you know, inform. But, yeah, I think definitely, ultimately, we have to take, you know, pride in what we're doing in understanding, having that experience and being able to communicate it in a way where you can get that buy-in because, you know, ultimately your board is your, that's your leadership and the executive officer, you know, that is your partner uh, to be able to, um, you know, influence uh, the board and deliver those messages. And again, I should clarify, I'm really speaking mostly about uh, organizations, nonprofit organizations that might be in the human services social services area. Um, I did have a couple from healthcare and education, but those institutions are often larger and just a little bit, you know, different. So really looking at the, um, you know, a different kind of a structure to a nonprofit organization where you would have that partnership with the CEO. Um, And yeah, I, I think we've got to be taking a look at, at the at the the strategy really and we know that return on investment is going to be more and more important um all the time it always has been but if we're spinning our wheels going down paths that were directed to by the board that may not you know be in the best interest of bringing in the kind of dollars that we need and building the kind of relationships we need um Somehow that has to be um, explained in a way that there's buy-in and a shift. And that's just my opinion on it. But But we love love research. Sarah, before I let you go, um, one of the things I talk about with my students over at the college, um, and this is sort of a shift in direction, but I'm I'm genuinely interested in your thoughts on this. Um, Did anything sort of – did anything sort of in your research – um, cause you to wonder if enough of us in the fundraising space have sort of asked ourselves why the nonprofit sector exists in the first place. Um, I, I, I'm consistently running into these conversations where we seem to be prescribing um, or asserting positions and, and opinions, opinions and assumptions about how fundraising should work that are not rooted in an understanding of why the sector as a whole exists to begin with. Um, 
you know, for example, uh, in, in one of the texts that I use with my students, for example, most nonprofit organizations originate at their founding, originate with a group of donors or uh, donors slash volunteers. So most nonprofit organizations are in many ways originate with a group of indiv- passionate individuals sitting around a dinner table in somebody's, you know, dining room, um, passionately saying that there's a problem in their community that needs to be solved. And typically they're volunteering their time and oftentimes subsequently their resources to make something happen. And so the organization itself originates with, in many ways, the donor more so than it does with the, um, you know, it never originates with a professional fundraiser, for example. Um, and, and I guess, I guess what I'm asking, do you sort of follow what my sort of line of questioning is? Cause I, I don't know if many of us think back that far into the history of our organizations and allow that to sort of say, Hey, these are the very, the very people that we're talking about as it relates to how, what our expectations of are the very people that founded these organizations to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, that certainly brings its own agenda. I guess I'll use that word. It seems a little strong, but, you know, that, <laughs> that brings a different layout to, you know, the vision for the organization. Not to mention, we have so many nonprofits, obviously. It's, um, you know, and, you know, we can talk about resource scarcity and that whole concept. And we can talk about competition because there are so many nonprofits doing the same thing. But ultimately, to know that we're filling this enormous gap, we are an enormous workforce, and it is because, you know, corporate America has its focus, government has its focus. We have to be here to be able to provide, you know, those things that are needed uh, for populations that are, you know, underserved, you know, which also, again, a, a word that's used so frequently that maybe it it loses a little bit of its impact. But, you know, really, ultimately, we've got to be looking at what is our mission? Are we able to accomplish it? And yeah, you're absolutely right with being, you know, established from the get-go, the nonprofits, in thinking about how are we going to raise these resources and bringing in a professional to help advise on that from the the very beginning, I think that that could be a very a very big game changer for a lot of organizations. But also taking a look at collaboration more and more. I'm hearing about that more and more, uh, even though it's always been kind of a kind of said, you know, for, by funders in particular, we want to see these nonprofits collaborate and partner more um, more closely together. Well, at the same time, we're in a little bit of a competition with each other for some of these resources. So it's a mind shift uh, for for nonprofits. And I do think there's a way to do it. I do think it would be beneficial for us to start thinking differently about that. But it's such an enormous topic, uh, you know, taking a look at the profession and the evolution and how we're viewed. Um, we have all these different constituencies from leaders to external leaders, internal leaders. Um, I will say also, I think there's space for talking about talent recruitment and our human resources side. You know, if we are fortunate to have those professionals helping to fill our nonprofit roles, our development roles, what are they looking for? And, um, 
and you know can we have a better alignment maybe there as well so i know it's here um before i let you go if if you if you had an opportunity to start your research all over again is there a different direction you'd take it or do you think you ended up exactly where you wanted to you know, I I ended up with some some interesting connections that hadn't been explored before. So with that, I'm I'm satisfied. Oh yes, I would. I know now. <laughs> yeah. You know uh, things that I could not have known in the very beginning. I think I would have. You know, I was grateful to be able to um, modify and use an existing survey instrument. I think knowing now a little bit more about, hey, maybe we need to look at this or that, I would design my own and I would really hone in on, you know, uh, something that could help us even make more connection with, you know, not that it's a causal relationship, but the influence relationships between, you know, whatever it might be, all of these characteristics we have. Uh, in our nonprofits and within philanthropy. So, yes. And so I do encourage people if they are interested in professionals, if they're interested in getting involved in some kind of research. I mean, we have a lot to do to catch up with other industries. And I think it's really, really needed. Sarah, it has certainly been a pleasure. I'm going to put some uh, notes in the, I'll put some information in the show notes so people can find your research. Uh, if somebody's interested in reaching out to you and, and uh, perhaps mm-hmm. continuing this conversation, uh, perhaps engaging you in uh, some ongoing dialogue about your findings, how would you suggest that they do that? Yes. So I could share with you an email address uh, where they can reach me directly, but I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, Sarah Jennings on LinkedIn uh, and yeah, please feel free to connect. Sarah, it has certainly been a pleasure. You are always welcome back. I always enjoy the conversations. Uh, you and I are very much on the same page. It has certainly been a pleasure. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.